Good morning. Happy Easter to everyone. Great to be together and uh, great to be together on the most significant day of the calendar. And really the most significant day of all human history was that first Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday changes absolutely everything because Jesus rose from the dead. Everything is different. If we had the time, and we don't, but if we had the time, we could go through the Bible and we could see passage after passage after passage that tells us and shows us and explains to us the significance of Jesus' death and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If we went through the New Testament especially, we'd find all sorts of references to it and explanations of why Jesus rising from the dead means that everything is different. If we had the time, we could do that. But what we're going to do instead is we're going to focus in on the one passage that's been read to us, the passage from John 20. And what we're going to find there is not a kind of an explanation of everything to do with the resurrection of Christ, but a very important point that is incredibly relevant to every one of us this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to John 20. We're going to kind of work our way through it. And we're going to be thinking about the significance of Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, Have you ever had a day where it seems like a normal day, maybe even a good day, and in an instant, it goes from good to very bad? You know, in, in one moment, suddenly a day that seems like any other imprints itself on your memory as a day that you won't forget. It could be something uh, relatively minor. I remember some years ago, I was working uh, as a salesman with the RAC, and I'd been selling, I think, in uh, Eastville, Bristol, and I'd had an okay day. It wasn't an amazing day, but I'd sold a few, so I was, I was happy with it, and I was coming home, and, and I was driving the car, and I was somewhere else in my mind. And I came down the long slope in, in Kingswood, and at the bottom of the slope, there's a roundabout, and I got across that, and then about 20 yards later, there's another roundabout, and I don't know where my head was, but I suddenly discovered a car turning in front of me, and it was too late. I barely got the brakes on before I hit the car. And in that moment, a normal day got imprinted on my mind for the rest of my life. Thankfully, no one was hurt, apart from my pride. It was 100% my fault. And my car was finished, their car was finished, my no claims bonus was finished. I mean, it was a horrible moment and it just happened so fast. Sometimes it's something more serious than that. You're going through a normal day and your phone rings and you think, oh, here's one of those people asking about the accident, you know, that you haven't had. And you think it's nothing and you answer and they ask for you by name. And then all of a sudden it becomes deadly serious as they've got news of a relative or, or something's happened and, and at the hospital or, or worse. And, and a good day goes from a normal day and a good day to a bad day, just like that. I'm sure many of us have experienced that. The, the, the pain, the, the emptiness, the, all the kind of emotional turmoil of a good day suddenly turning bad. And we're going to see that in this passage, that actually for Mary Magdalene, a, a bad day got even worse. But then, something that I'm sure none of us have experienced at the level we're going to see in this passage, an incredibly bad day becoming the best day in just a moment. No one's ever experienced that like she did. And we're going to see that in this passage. It's an emotional passage. It's a, it's a kind of a heart-stirring passage. And it begins with Mary Magdalene on Easter Sunday morning coming to the tomb. We know a little bit about Mary Magdalene. She was a woman who had had seven demons controlling and ruining her life. And then she met Jesus and he set her free from that. 
And in that moment, she went from, from someone who was living just kind of hell on earth to suddenly being free and having life. And so in that moment, Jesus became everything to her and she followed him. She followed him from Galilee where she was and she followed him right the way down to Jerusalem and, and she was there. She saw what had happened that first Easter. She saw the crowds. She saw uh, the tension. She could feel it. She saw when Jesus was uh, brought out to be crucified. She was there. She was there when he was hung up on the cross, when there was the, uh, just the gasping for air, the agony that he went through. She was there and she'd seen it. She'd seen uh, the, the pain that he went through when he forced himself to get a breath in order to say something. She was there when the, the sky went black and it went all dark and, uh, and everyone was saying, what's happened, what's happened? And for the next three hours, uh, as Jesus hung on the cross in the darkness and cried out, she was there. She'd seen it, she'd experienced it. It was the worst day that she had ever gone through. She'd heard the cry from the cross, it is finished. She probably even heard the last breath leave his body. She would have seen the spear go into his side. She saw the body taken down. She saw the body taken away and laid into the tomb. And she watched the whole thing. And I don't know what that night must have been like for her and for the others, but it must have been horrible. Just the emptiness, the darkness, the fear, the, the confusion of it all. The tears. And she'd gone through that Friday night, maybe eventually uh, out of utter exhaustion, falling asleep, a fitful sleep probably, then Saturday. Was it just a dream? No, it was real. And then the Saturday when they couldn't do much because it was the Sabbath and there were restrictions and, and they were kind of stuck there. And then uh, another night. And then Easter Sunday morning for her was just the first chance to get to the tomb. Maybe to do something for the body, maybe to, to just mourn and grieve like you, you desperately need to in that situation. And she came to the tomb that morning just as the sun was rising, but there was an immense darkness inside of her because nothing could lift that darkness. Her Jesus, the one who had transformed her life, was dead. Nothing could make that day get worse. And when she got to the tomb, it got worse. She found the stone had been rolled away and, and the body was no longer inside. And what, what turmoil that must have created. Was, was, this, was this some kind of, something had gone wrong? Was this grave robbers? They had problems with grave robbers in the Roman Empire where people would come in heartlessly in the worst moment for a family and break in during the night and take the body away and, and take any treasures that had been buried, you know, the kind of uh, the, the thing that was so precious, it would all be gone and they, they didn't care. And maybe in that moment, Mary thought, oh no, this has gone from awful to worse. And so she ran. And she ran to the disciples to tell them what had happened. And then they ran. Peter and John ran to the tomb. I love this little bit. Because it's such a human uh, moment in the gospel. Just one of those things that you think, you know what? That, that just underlines how accurate and how real this document is. John, decades later, wrote this. And I can imagine the, the old man John remembering that day as if it was yesterday, maybe with a glint in his eye as he wrote the story of him and Peter racing to the tomb. He would have remembered growing up with Peter. It was his cousin, it was his best friend. They seemed to be really tight. He would have remembered trudging to a Sabbath school on a Saturday morning. 
and going through the lessons and, and then at the end of that, rushing and racing back down to the, the, the boats and then the next day out to the boats and out you know, fishing and the racing and the competing and they've done it for years. You can kind of grow a boy into a man, but as we know, men and women know that men are just little boys, right? We keep something of the little boy in us. And so here, these two grown men raced to the tomb. And John, with a glint in his eye, maybe a tear in his eye too, thinking about Peter who had died years before the time he wrote it. Maybe he, he just, I can't help myself. I got there first. Isn't that, I just love that. Here's this old man writing the story and he's like, yeah, we, we ran, we raced to the tomb and, and, and I won the race. I wonder, this is totally speculation now, but I wonder if when John eventually died and went to heaven and had a conversation with Peter, I wonder if they talked about it. I wonder if Peter said, hey, I've got a bone to pick with you. No pun intended there. But hey, on the day when we went to the tomb and you wrote that, good job, I liked your writing, why did you mention that you won the race? I don't know, I just think maybe they had that conversation. And maybe John kind of laughed and said, I couldn't help myself. And then Peter said, well, at least you were honest that I went into the tomb first. And maybe John, you know, said, well, yeah, but actually, if you read it carefully, you couldn't stop yourself. You just flew into that tomb, you oaf. You know, so maybe that conversation carried on when they were in heaven. But, but that's what was happening. They raced. They got to get there. They wanted to know what had happened. And John arrived first, winner. And then Peter flew in and he saw And what he saw was at the very least intriguing. It was designed, I think, to get their attention. And certainly when John went in, what he saw caused him to believe. This was no grave robbery. If it was a grave robbery, it would have been all in a a mess, like when you come home and your house has been burgled. You know, stuff is everywhere. If you're going to steal a body during the night, you're going to leave a mess. This was no grave robbery. There was the, the cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus still there. The, the cloth that had been over his face, neatly folded and put down. It was as if, it was kind of like if, if you get up, uh, you've had temporary accommodation, you've stayed in a friend's house, you're thankful for their you know, hospitality, and you get up early in the morning to head off to the airport or whatever it is, and you kind of make the bed. And you're, you're really grateful. It was, thank you so much for having me, but I won't be needing this anymore. And Jesus that morning got up uh, from the dead, And in effect said, I won't be needing this anymore. Folded it up, calm, in control, no panic, no body being stolen. He was alive. And he rose from the dead and he left the grave clothes behind because he would never need them again. And he walked out of the tomb. And when Peter and John saw that in the midst of the confusion... John believed. It was like all those words that they'd heard. It started to come back together for them. It started to make sense. Jesus had predicted this. He'd said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be, you know, suffer and I'm going to be ill-treated and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And it started to click for them. And they left. And I suppose what we're left with, in a sense, is that empty tomb. Because that, that really is the foundation point of the whole Christian faith. If Jesus did not actually, physically, literally, properly, really rise from the dead, then everything else is rubbish. Everything that we believe, everything that we say, everything we talk about, useless. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christianity is empty 
and you can throw it away. But before you throw it away and walk away, you've got to look at the evidence of that empty tomb. That's what sets us apart. That's what sets our belief apart from every other religion, from every other philosophy, from every other way of living, because every other approach to life has people that are dead at the, at the kind of top of the list. The leaders of religions, the re- leaders of, of philosophical systems, they're all dead. And you can visit their tombs, and some of them are immaculate and impressive and big, and whoa, look at that. But there's a dead body inside, but you cannot visit the dead body of Jesus because there is no dead body of Jesus. And so that empty tomb is where we begin. That's where Christianity gets a grip on us and says, Oi, let me get your attention. You've got to understand Jesus is not dead. And so that empty tomb is like a big gaping mouth crying out to us, crying out to us that death is dead. That Jesus has entered into death and he has swallowed up death and death is finished. Sin is dealt with. The tomb cries out to us that the offering that Jesus made on the cross to his father was fully accepted, price paid, problem solved, sin dealt with. We don't need to worry about sin being held against us anymore. The tomb cries that to us. It cries out to us that hell is not something we need to fear. That judgment is not coming on us because of what Jesus has done. Death and hell and sin and Satan is defeated and he can come at us and he can tempt us and he can whisper and he can say and he can threaten and he can do whatever he wants. But there's a louder voice and it's the voice of an empty tomb screaming, he's lost and you're free and you don't need to fear him anymore. He's got nothing on you. The empty tomb cries out, not only that death is not something to fear, but the process is not something to fear. Your body has a future. God values your body and as you feel your body degenerating and fading and you get the bad news from the doctor and it just seems to go from bad to worse, you can say to yourself, but this is not the end of the story because even though I will lie in a coffin, that will not be where I stay. That will be a temporary place because one day my body like his will rise from the dead and I won't be needing the coffin anymore. The empty tomb cries to us that death is not our future, that our bodies are not just decaying into nothing, that our life is not meaningless, that there's purpose and there's a hope and there's a destiny ahead of us. And the tomb cries all of that to us. And if we had the time, we could go through the Bible and we could chase passage after passage after passage that tell us the significance of Jesus rising from the dead. But John 20 tells us, I think, one thing. And it's that one thing that I want us to see this morning. And I want us to dwell on it. I'd love us to ponder it. I'd love us to be gripped by it. And it involves Mary. Because while Peter and John were having their little boys race and, you know, having their moment in the tomb and then leaving, Mary had come back and she'd come to the tomb and she's just weeping. Remember, this is still the blackest of black days for her. And she's weeping and she's, she's just desperate because not only is her Jesus dead, now somebody's stolen the body. How am I supposed to, to grieve? How is he supposed to rest in peace and all those things we say? If the body is stolen, she's going through all of that turmoil and the tears are just pouring. 
Maybe the tears poured all through Friday night and she thought this will never stop. And maybe eventually she had fallen into a sleep and then woken up Saturday. And, and once she realized it was real, the floodgates opened and maybe she'd cried all day Saturday. Maybe you know what that's like, that feeling that I'll never be able to stop crying. And she went through all of that. And now Sunday morning, right now, there's something I can do. And she pulled herself together and she was like, right now, there's something I can do. And maybe the tears had stopped. But then the body was gone and the tears just came again. And so she's standing there with the tears just pouring down. And there's two angels in the tomb. And these two angels are sat there, and she can kind of recognize that there's two beings in there. But she, you know, this is one of the rare moments where there isn't the whole standard conversation with angels. Ah, do not be afraid. Okay, it's an angel. That doesn't happen here because she doesn't recognize that it's angelic. It's just two people. And so, you know, what are you seeking? Oh, I'm looking for the body of Jesus. And, and she turns, and there's a man there, and she thinks it's the gardener. Just through her tears, it's just a person in a garden. What else would it be? And so here's the gardener, and he asks her the same question. What are you seeking? Why are you weeping? What's, what's going on? And she answers and she, she says, okay, look, if you've taken the body, tell me where it is. I'm going to be superwoman and I'm going to go carry it because I don't care if this makes sense anymore. I've got to get the body of Jesus back. And then the moment, the most powerful moment probably in all of human history where the worst possible day turns to the best possible day, Mary. And she still couldn't see with her tears there, but she could hear from her heart with her ears that that was the voice of Jesus. And that this man was not the gardener in in some sort of normal gardening sense. This man was Jesus and he was speaking to her and he was stood there and he was alive and he spoke her name. And in that moment, everything got turned around for Mary. And she did the obvious. She did what you would have done. She did what probably I would have done. After seeing him slip away on the Friday of being ripped out of her, her, her kind of reach or, or, or sense of closeness, he was taken and he was lifted and she could do nothing to stop it. And then coming to the tomb and some heartless robbers had stolen the body or whatever she thought had happened, she was not going to let him go now and she grabbed a hold of Jesus. And he said, no, no, don't, don't cling to me. I'm going back to my father. Hanging on to me and keeping me here is not the point right now, but I've got a job for you, Mary. I've got a mission for you. I want you to go to the disciples, but he doesn't call them that. Notice what he calls them. I want you to go to my brothers. And I want, to, I want you to tell them something. And this is, this is just uh, the bit that I, I want us to, to kind of ponder and drive deep into our hearts. What he says here is absolutely astonishing. I want you to go to my brothers and say to them, and then he starts speaking about the Father. Now, if we had the time, again, we could go through John's gospel and we could spot every time Jesus speaks. It's a fun thing to do. I think, I'm going from memory here, I did the count once, I think it's about 418 sentences that Jesus speaks in John's gospel. In, I think I'm accurate here, don't you know, write this down. But I think in 192 of them, that is in almost half of the sentences that Jesus speaks, he's speaking about the Father and the Son. He's speaking about the, his relationship with his Father. He's claiming that he is equal with his Father. And he's talking about the Father, Son, Father, Son, Father, Son. It's almost like every other sentence through the entire gospel, Jesus has been speaking about 
my father. That's what got him into trouble in the first place. He made himself equal with God. Every time he talked about the father and the son, it kind of sealed the deal as far as his death because the, the leaders couldn't cope with that. But now for the very first time, he says something about the father. He's never said this in the entire gospel. Now he says to Mary, go to my brothers and say to them, verse 17, I am ascending to my father, to my God, but he also says, and to your father, and to your God. He's never said that before. He's never said your father to the disciples, not even to Peter, James, and John, none of them. It's always been my father. But now he says, who is your father? Isn't that beautiful? Easter changes everything, and this is the biggest thing it changes. You see, Easter means that now, because Jesus has died in our place, and Jesus has paid the penalty for sin, and because Jesus has drawn our hearts away from ourselves and to him, and because he's conquered death and come out of the grave, he's walking uh, out into the garden, and he's speaking to Mary. In this moment, what we discover is that all of that means that we get to share his relationship with his father. That's amazing. All the trouble it caused, my father, my father, my father. Now we get to call him my father. Jesus could cry out Abba. Now we get to cry out Abba. He's our father. Jesus is our brother. The the relationship of the Trinity that is the most beautiful, perfect, attractive relationship in the entire cosmos is now our relationship because we are brought into that. The embrace of the Trinity has reached out to us. And what a cost. What a cost it was to make that possible. The death of Jesus now raised and he comes to us and he speaks to us by name. And invites us into that fellowship. Here at Trinity, we, uh, we call our church Trinity because we're so excited about that relationship. We're so thrilled by the fact that as we discover more and more of, of the wonder of the relationship of the Father and the Son by the Spirit, that we discover more and more what it means to have our lives transformed because we are brought into that by Jesus' death. As we trust in him, he brings us in. You see, this passage, it doesn't leave us just with an empty tomb. Empty tomb is designed to get our attention, but an empty tomb is not sufficient. It's a fact. It's a historical reality. It's worth exploring. It's worth saying, you know what? I want to know if that's true, and it's worth chasing that, but that's just the beginning. Really, if that's the foundation, the heart of Christianity is what happens between Jesus and Mary. Because Christianity isn't simply assenting to the fact of the resurrection of Christ. It's about a personal encounter with Christ. It's about a personal relationship with someone. Just think about it. The person who we read about in the Gospels, who walked around and did the miracles and fed the crowds and healed the people and you know, cast out demons, that same Jesus is alive today. And by his spirit, he approaches us. Sometimes in the lowest of moments, sometimes when everything else is falling apart, sometimes when we cannot even see straight because the tears are flooding down our faces, he approaches us and he knows us by name. Isn't that beautiful? 
Jesus knows you by name. Dave, Trevor, Izzy, Danny, Miriam, Debbie, Ben, Dave. Jesus knows us by name. And he invites us into what he has always enjoyed for all eternity, his relationship with his father. And he says, hey, you, you're my brother, you're my sister. And you can call him dad. And you're welcome. And I'm glad you're here. And what, how do we respond? <coughs> we respond in, in a variety of ways. But the, the real response that I think delights him is when we respond by not resisting. When we respond by not saying, no, 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 it's okay, I've got it. I can, I can handle my life. I can take care of my problem. No, Jesus loves it when our response is, okay, I'm yours. If you did that for me, if you died that way because you loved me, then it doesn't matter how big the problems are. It doesn't matter how big my sin is. I just want to throw all of that away because I am yours. I'm asking you to let me into your family if that's what you want to do. I don't believe it. That's amazing. But okay, I believe it. I trust it. You want me in your family. I'm in. I'm yours. If you know me by name, I'm thrilled to let your father be my father. And whether it's for the first time or for the the thousandth time, in a sense, as he stirs our hearts, our response can just be, oh, Jesus, thank you. I love you. Thank you for accepting me. Now, for some of us, it's been years, and every Easter is so special, and, and, and even every Sunday is so special. But there may be some here this morning who are saying, well, you know what? I'm not really there yet. I'm sort of looking in. Maybe intrigued by Christianity, maybe just going to church to be polite, but you know, I'm kind of not there yet. And maybe this morning, you got that sense that, hang on a second, are you, are you saying that the real Jesus, that Jesus, the, the risen Jesus, that he actually knows me? I'm saying, yes, he does. And maybe you're saying, well, it's not you that's convincing me, but there's something that's gripping a hold of me, and that would be the Spirit of God drawing you. And I just want to invite you this morning. If it's the first time, respond. Just say, okay, everything I was living for, everything that, that I was going to try to do in my own strength, all of my you know, plans to fix things and all the bad stuff I've done and my plans to make that right, I'm just going to give it all up. I'm going to surrender all of that. If you know me by name, Jesus, and if you died in my place, count me in. I'm yours. And you can pray, you can you know, say special words if you've learned special words, but that's not what he's looking for. What he's looking for is a heart that says, yes, I accept you. I want what you are offering. You're offering me forgiveness, I need it. You're offering me life, I need it. You're offering me your father as my father, oh yes, please. And however you phrase it, why not let today be the day where your heart stops resisting and says, okay, I'm in.